Okay. And now I would like to introduce again our illustrious Regent Du Chair, who has a couple of words to say to you. I know you're all waiting with bated breath. The answer, the question that's on the tip of every one of your tongues is, what does Pam have that came from the new to you boutique? Da 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 da. One dollar. So if you missed it, it's okay. It's okay. Go to the silent auction. There's going to be a lot more items there. Did you enjoy your dinner? Are you looking forward to a great speaker? Is this fellowship fantastic? You don't have to stop now. Tomorrow morning, we're going to do it again. We're going to have breakfast. So anybody who hasn't signed up for breakfast, we have a few tickets left. And it would surely help Region 2 if you came. And Hannah, she's waving her hand. Hannah has tickets for you. And it's $25. Now, you know if you go to the cafe here, it's like $14, $15. And you've got to give a couple dollars for a tip. And you've got to give a couple dollars to Arnold, you know. So that's $20. So just figure you're going to come here, you're going to hang out with people you like, you're going to have the same food. It's like putting $5 in the basket. That's the way you look at it. So I'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks. Okay, and with that, I'd like to introduce, are you ready? Our speaker for this evening, Anne, from the 831 area code, and she'll tell you where that's at. I thought there was going to be a podium. My name is Anna. I'm a grateful recovering compulsive overeater. Um, I'm from Aptos, California, which is in Santa Cruz County, and that is the 831 area code. I'm very happy to be here and see all your wonderful faces um, because you are responsible for my recovery from compulsive overeating. I keep coming back because I can't do it by myself. Let's face it, if I could do it by myself, I wouldn't be here. It's very simple. I wouldn't be here. But today I know I cannot do this by myself. And today I don't want to. I don't want to do this by myself. So I'm grateful that you're here. Um, give you a little bit of background. My first meeting was in April of 1980. Um, a friend of mine had sent me OA literature through the mail. Um, so I went to my first meeting, but then I was too busy. And uh, during that, I was living in Nebraska at that time. And during that summer, I'd come, I came to California, to Grass Valley, to visit my friend who had sent me the literature. And I went to my second meeting in Grass Valley, California in August of 1980, and I'm one of the lucky ones. I have never gone away. <laughs> Seen a lot of people come and go. Some of them came back. Many of them did not. And it makes my heart very sad um, when people disappear because I know how miserable it is out there. I cannot imagine what it would be like with 29 more years of this progressive disease. I mean, it was pretty bad. But 29 more years of this progressive disease, I just, I can't imagine. And thank you, God, I don't have to. 
Um, I think about the um, OA 12 and 12 is the operating manual that I never got. It tells me how to live my life. And I love those 12 steps and those 12 traditions because they really do tell me how to, how to live my life. You know, the steps tell me how to do, to take care of myself and clean up after myself and, uh, you know, maybe avoid making messes in the future. And the traditions teach me how to live in the world. You know, there's, I've been on a number of, of boards, not OA boards, but boards where I, would, I wanted to bring them the 12 traditions. <laughs> you know, unity. We're all trying to pull in the same direction. Come on. You know, we've got a primary purpose. You know, all those kinds of things. We're self-supporting through our own contributions. You know, all of those things that, you know, work in, in a family. They work in a business situation. They work in other volunteer situations. It just amazes me um, how the 12 traditions apply throughout my life. And I'm just so grateful that, you know, I heard somebody say one time, he said, uh, if, you, if you only work the 12 steps, you're only working half of, the, half of a program. And I was like, whoa, I mean, I've always looked at, you know, I know a lot about traditions, but I never thought about it that way. I've also heard said, you know, the 12 traditions, the half of the book nobody reads. You know, that's one of the things, uh, when I go to meetings in Santa Cruz, um, we have a lot of step and tradition uh, meetings because we have small meetings, so there aren't always speakers. We have speakers every once in a while. But we read the tradition of the month every month. Every meeting I've gone to, we read the tradition of the month every month. And that was something I didn't see in San Jose when I, I, I was in San Jose for lots of years. And I didn't see that. And, and I really appreciate that we do that in Santa Cruz because it keeps the traditions in front of people. And that's what keeps this whole thing going. Um, tell you a little bit about my background. Um, I, when I came into this program, I said I was born fat and I'm going to die fat. I mean, I weighed over 10 pounds when I was born. Um, so I was, a, and I was a chubby child. Do you remember the chubby sizes? Oh my God. My mother made my clothes for a long time, but then when I actually got to go to the store, I had to go to the chubby section. Hated that. But what's really interesting going back and look at some of my pictures, especially when I was in high school, and it's like, Man, I'd die to have that body today. <laughs> but I felt, I just felt fat at that time. I mean, and that tells me that a lot of it's between my ears. Um, I love this program. I, I, have, I have a life beyond my wildest dreams. Born and raised in South Dakota on a farm. Now I live a few blocks from the Pacific Ocean in California. And I, I mean, there are days I wake up and I want to pinch myself. I'm just a South Dakota farm girl. How did I get here? But you know, a lot of it has to do because of this program. A lot of it has to do because of this program. Um, I grew up with a mother who was a rageaholic and I learned well from her. Um, and my mother was afraid of everything. Now she never talked about being afraid I can see that by looking back, but she was angry all the time. 
And as I started working through these steps and started dealing with my own rage, raging and my own anger, I got to see that most of my anger was to cover up fear, disappointment, and in some, some cases, you know, shame or guilt. But the big one was fear. You know, nobody got close enough. When I was angry, nobody got close enough to find out I was afraid. You know, nobody would, and I didn't want anybody to know that they had hurt my feelings or that I was afraid or that I was disappointed because they would do it again. I would just give them ammunition. I don't know where that came from, but boy, that was really clear to me. Don't give anybody ammunition. You know, so as I started working through the steps, you know, really looking at being powerless over food, I was pretty clear when I came in. Um, but the second part, you know, my life is unmanageable. I remember one of the first days in OA I went to was in Omaha, Nebraska, and some woman, bless her heart, I wish I knew who she was uh, today, she said, I don't think you've ever taken the second half of the first step. Well, of course, I was like, what do you mean? But as I got to look at that, you know, my life was unmanageable. You know, the credit card bill came, and before I would open it, I would eat. You know, things would happen. Before I would deal with them, I would eat. You know, my life was unmanageable. Besides the fact that I was a single parent, um, I had a full-time job, I owned my own home, I still had an unmanageable life. May have looked okay from the outside, but from the inside, it was just very scary. So that was just really a big, a big thing. And and going on to the second step was to find a higher power that I could live with. I was raised in a very um, strict, judgmental, with a strict, judgmental kind of God. And um, you know, it didn't matter what I did. You know, by this time I'm divorced, so it doesn't matter what you what you're doing. You are bad. You know, so it was like I had to fi- I had to fire that God. I had to just basically say, you are out of here. I can't deal with you anymore. You do not work for me. I'm done. And find a God, a hired God that loves me no matter what. And a God that wants the very, very, very best for me no matter what. Even if it looks like crap. I know that God wants the very best for me, which is most of the time not what I want. You know, I always say, and I've heard many times, be careful what you pray for because you may get it, and then you're going to be going, oh, no, that was not a good idea. Because that's happened to me, and I like to make things happen. Well, I've made things happen that just weren't very good for me, and they weren't very fun after I got them. So to find a God that really worked for me, that you know, loved me no matter what. And then moving on to the third step, turning my life and my will over to the care of that God. Well, that was really scary for me because I was afraid God would want me to be a nun, and I didn't want to be a nun. (laughs) What I know today is that if God wanted me to be a nun, he would put that desire in my heart. And it's not there, and I'm not going to be a nun. (laughs) But that was really scary for me. It's like, oh, my gosh, if I turn my life and my will over to this God, what if he wants me to do something I don't want to do? Well, there's been a number of times he's wanted me to do things I don't want to do. But when I do them, I know they're for my best. You know, I know God wants the very best for me. Deep in my gut, I know God wants the very best for me. And that is such a comfort, especially when things look like they're falling apart and, and uh, 
they're not good and they're never going to be good and, you know, all those kinds of things that just to have that deep abiding trust that God wants good things for me is just what a gift. What a gift. I feel like I'm one of the chosen ones because I was chosen to come to this program and to stay. We are all blessed to be in this program. I really believe that. And one of the things I tell sponsees is that there's not a whole lot that I'm going to, you know, really emphasize about this program, but I guarantee that if you work these steps, your life will get better. I don't know what that looks like, and I don't know when it will happen. But I guarantee that if you work these steps, your life will get better. That has been my experience, and it just gets better and better and better and better. It's just amazing to me, totally amazing. And it's because of the work I've done. And I did this work because you guys were here supporting me, and I had a higher power who loved me no matter what. Going through a fourth step. My teenage years were not fun the first time. I did not want to go through them a second time. They weren't any more fun the second time than they were the first time. But the release from doing that four-step inventory, and really, I did a chronological inventory. Um, and as I uh, was, was writing through that, I mean, I just put it away. I did it without a sponsor. I do not recommend that. That, is, that was not a good idea. You know, my strong and independent woman got in there and, you know, don't do it. Oh, please don't do it that way. It's way painful. Um, so actually getting through that. And when my son went through his teenage years, it was a really healing time. Because by, he, was, um, he was 10 when I came into the program. Uh, and by that time, I'd been in the program a few years. And I'd worked through that, you know, relive my teenage years, not only not knowing that I was going to do it again when he was a teenager, but knowing what I learned by doing my inventory was that I could then be there for him like my parents were never there for me. That I could listen to him. I could tell him when I was afraid. That was also a time when I worked through a lot of my rage. I mean, I had journals that, you know, I would write so hard on that page, it would go through like two or three pages. Because I was a verbal abuser, an emotional abuser, and sometimes a physical abuser. Not proud of that. But because of this program and working through the steps and looking at my part of things and making amends, I have an incredible relationship with my son. I like him as a person, not just because he's my son. And now I also have a wonderful daughter-in-law. They were just married last August. And this was my mother of the groom outfit. So you got to see it the second time around. <laughs> but it was so much fun. And I just have, I just came, went to see them. My son lives in Park City, Utah. And I just went to see them just a few days ago. And um, I just call them up and say, you know, I'm getting ready to go back to Africa and I want to come see you before I go because I miss you. And it's like, okay, let's see which weekend we're going to be around and you just come. I mean, they're just like so open. Now, I really never wanted my mother to come and visit. So I just feel so grateful. And it's because of this program that I am not the psycho mother, psycho mother-in-law that I have the ability to be. Because I know that has not been completely removed from me. 
it doesn't show up very often. I can't remember the last time I, I threw a full-fledged tamper tantrum. Well, that was like a daily thing, you know, where I'm throwing things and cussing and swearing. And, you know, I don't do that anymore. And that is by the grace of God. By the grace of six and seven. Six and seven are my favorite steps. And they are my favorite steps because that's where I've seen the, the biggest difference in my life. Is that, that that rage has been removed from me one day at a time. And I am just so, so grateful because it's a horrible horrible way to live you know raging I was like a volcano when I would just explode I would let off the steam and then I'd feel a little better and then I'd look at the damage that I'd caused all around me and just be like oh my gosh then the shame and the guilt and you know what do I do with shame and guilt eat is there anything else you know thank God today I know there is something else you know there's writing and phone, phone calls, and, you know, I remember calling my, I called my sponsor, this was when my son was a teenager, and we were going through something, and I called my sponsor, and her husband answers, and she's not home. So I just go, because I knew him real well, too, and I said, Bob, will you listen to me? And he did. He was so good. Everyone's like, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. And to this day, whenever I see him, I just, like, give him a big hug, you know, because you sponsored me, too. It was just so wonderful um, to just, because I needed to talk to somebody, and I needed to talk to him then. And it was just so wonderful. But it's because of this program that I could be open and honor and talk to people and tell them what's really, really going on. What's really going on. Um, I want to talk a little bit about eight and nine. I moved from Nebraska to California in 1981. So I'd been in the program less than, I'd been attending meetings less than a year. So I'd really started attending meetings in August of of 80. And then in like June of 81, I was moving to California. And I knew I wouldn't see my ex-husband for a while. So it was like I had not worked all the steps. I hadn't done a fourth step. But I knew I needed to make amends to him face to face. So it was like the last time he brought my son back, you know, he'd been, my son had been with him and visiting him, and he brought him back home, and I said, you know, I need to talk to you. So he's like, I mean, this is a man who was used to me yelling at him. So I kind of pulled him off to the side, and I just want, I said, you know, I just want to say to you that I'm really sorry for my part in what happened in our marriage. He lost all color in his face. He was probably waiting for me to start yelling. And I said, look, that's, you know, that's all I have to say. And from that day on, the resentment from that divorce was gone. Lifted. I had not worked my fourth step, fifth step. I wasn't anywhere close to nine. But I just knew I needed to do that face to face. I just needed to do that. Now, I don't think I saw him again face-to-face until 1988 when my son was graduating from college, from high school. And then I just saw him again last fall, which was another 20 years later. So, you know, it was just... And he looked really old. <laughs> Aren't I awful? Anyway, I just couldn't resist that. But that was my first thing. It was like, oh, my God, he looks old. Um, so anyway, 
But, you know, I could say to him, uh, you know, we did a really good job, didn't we? We did a really good job raising a really nice young man. And we did. We did. He's a very good young man. So I'm very grateful about that. Um, step 10. I love step 10 because it says, when we are wrong, not if. It says, when we are wrong, promptly admitted it. It's like, you're going to screw up and this is what you do. I love that because it gives me permission. Well, it, it acknowledges, doesn't give me permission. It acknowledges I'm a human being and I'm going to make mistakes. And here's what you do. Here's what you do. These steps are just so amazing to be able to, you know, there's so those little, they were God-given. Those steps were God-given. Absolutely God-given. Um, and because of this program, you know, getting getting uh, spiritual, I, I, you know, I didn't have a spiritual life when I came here. I did not have a spiritual life. But I've learned here how to make a contact with a loving God, not a judging God, how to make contact through prayer and meditation. And I love the second part of the, of the 11th step because, again, it tells me exactly what to pray for. Praying only for knowledge of your will for me and the power to carry it out. Okay, so you're going to screw up, and this is what you do, and then this is how you run your life. You pray for the knowledge. And, and you know, that just carries me through. Carries me. I need very clear instructions. But if you want to hold me to a particular rigid thing, then my, my teenager comes out and rebels. So, you know, it's kind of a fine line. There, but I know that I find answers in those in the books. You know, when I came in, we didn't have the 12 and 12. The For Today book came out in like December of '82. I have my, I still have my For Today book. It has a little extra tape on the outside now. But I like to date books when I when I get them, and it's December something 1982, and it was right after it came out. And you know that little book? Somebody keeps putting different words in there. Because I have read that year after year after year after year, and I opened it up, and it's like, I'm sure it didn't say this last year. In the same way with reading the steps over and over. I still love the AA 12 and 12 also. It's got so many underlines in so many different colors, you know, highlights, underlines, you know, because that really was, that was the operating manual before I got the OA 12 and 12. And I just, you know, what a, what a life-saving thing those books are. And we're so lucky now to have our own literature that we don't have to substitute, you know, food for alcohol and compulsive overeater for alcoholic. And that the, the examples speak to my heart. But thank goodness we had the AA stuff until we had our own, until we were mature enough to have our own. So, you know, I love reading both of those. And there's, I go to a phone meeting on Friday, and we have this wonderful format where, you know, first week we have a speaker on the step, step of the month. Second week, OA 12 and 12. Third week, AA 12 and 12. Fourth week, tradition of the month. And if there's a fifth week, we have a speaker come in to talk about the, that section from the, to talk, using the big book to talk about whatever steps have been covered since the last time we had a fifth Friday. It's just a, it's a wonderful meeting because it's in the literature. 
It's in the solution. And speaker meetings are wonderful, and I miss speaker meetings, and I love the literature meetings. So I really like the combination of the two. It's really great. And the last um, step about carrying the message, um, I like the part where it says, we are the message. We are the message that, that of Overeaters Anonymous by how we live our lives, what we do. And practicing these principles in all my affairs, it was so easy to practice on you guys. You know, I practiced a lot of stuff on you guys. Um, you know, doing a lot of service work, you know, days in OA, retreats, conventions, you know, all of that kind of stuff to, that I practiced on you. And I learned that I had a lot of talents and a lot of skills that I didn't know I had. But I practiced on you first because you were safe. You weren't going to run me out or fire me if I did something wrong. And I took those skills back to my workplace and into my profession and was able to use those skills. But I practiced a lot of things on you first. And then as far as practicing, you know, being able to listen to people, taking that into my family and to, with, to my son. You know, I learned in here to listen, to listen. As a sponsor, I would listen. As a sponsee, I would listen. But I learned how to listen. I was never very good at listening because I was always forming my comment while you were talking. And being able to just listen and to listen to my son like I was never listened to as a child. And when I was listening to my son, I was healing my own inner child that had been damaged, not listened to. And that was, that was a, real, a real healing time, a very healing time. It was a painful time, too, um, you know, because I, what I remember, you know, I remember sitting on the floor in the living room with my son. I'm sobbing. And what I'm saying to him is, you're pulling away from me just the way you're supposed to. And it hurts like hell. It hurts like hell. And that's what happens when they're teenagers. They're supposed to pull away. They make you really mad sometimes, too. But they're supposed to pull away. And by that time, you know, if I haven't done my job as a parent, it's a little late. Because it's not going to work after that. But thank goodness, you know, I was... He was 10 when I came into the program, so he lived with a pretty crazy woman for a lot of his life because I was not struck sane at my first meeting. So it continued on, you know, with this crazy woman. But because of this program, you know, I could make amends to him. I could make living amends. And, you know, we were both, well, we're very much alike. So we go like this, especially when he's a teenager. We both want to have the last word and we both want to be right. Thank you. So, um, and that was, I was still like a verbal abuser. And so, you know, he would be talking to me like, rah, 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 and I'd say, don't talk to me like that. And he would say, well, you talk to me like that. And he was right. So with a lot of step work and a lot of journaling and a lot of timeouts where I would go to my room and write in my journal and call my sponsor, I stopped doing that. That's why I love six and seven. I stopped doing that. And so then I could say to him, don't talk to me like that, different tone of voice. And he would say, would you talk to me like that? And I could look at him and I, can say, I could say to him, you and I both know that I used to talk to you like that, but I don't anymore. 
And you know, it wasn't long before neither of us were talking to each other that way. You know, I have a friend who says, the people in our families get this program like secondhand smoke. It just seeps out to everyone around us. I can also remember one time when he was a junior or senior in high school, and he was working on his car, which was like, you know, I needed to just like leave the county when he was working on his car, because he was always upset when he was working on his car. And he was like, all right, he's growling at me, and you know, and I knew he was working on his car, so it had nothing to do with me. And so I just kind of walked away. And later, he came up to me and he said, Mom, I'm sorry for how I talked to you. I wasn't mad at you. I was mad at my car. That's secondhand smoke. That is secondhand smoke. I mean, it just, I almost cried at the time. And it brings tears to my eyes also. Um, this program is incredible. It is totally incredible. Absolutely incredible. And, you know, I think about, you know, the worst thing that happened in my life and the best thing that happened in my life. Well, the worst thing that happened in my life is that I was 19 years old. I was pregnant, South Dakota, not married, Catholic. The best thing that ever happened to me in my life is my son. They are one and the same. So you never know. You never know when things happen. Whether, you know, it's the good news or the bad news. You know, it's really it's too soon to tell. It's just too soon to tell. And, you know, this program has saved my life. Absolutely. South Dakota farm girl, living by the beach, retired. I retired a few years ago. Now I'm semi-retired. Traveling to Africa uh, since I retired, you know, spending a lot of time in Africa, getting ready to go again, very excited. Um, you know, doing volunteer work and now actually um, working for this nonprofit that I volunteered with before. But, you know, that's a whole nother story. But this, this was a person who was too afraid. You know, luckily I had my child early because I was too afraid to have done any traveling at that time anyway. And now he's grown. I'm not afraid anymore, or I do it in spite of the fear. And I get to do all these wonderful things, travel to to uh, Africa, Kenya, and Uganda. Uganda's my favorite. Oh, love Uganda. Um, and I get to do these things because today I have a program that's very portable. Lifeline is wonderful to take with me. Um, I have books, OA books, that do not leave my suitcase. I have a, my For Today that's from 1982, a little um, 12 and 12, and then the first, what is it, 100 and whatever pages of the big book. And those just stay in my suitcase. Those do not come out of my suitcase. They, they just stay there, so I can't say I forgot them. They just stay there. And, um, you know, it's a portable program. God's everywhere. So I'm grateful. Thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting me in my recovery. And keep coming back. It works. Thank you, Anne.
Okay, are you ready to be entertained? All right. Okay. Um, I would like to introduce, uh, I'm not sure what I'm introducing, but I think there's someone else in the room, Anne. Anne, could you come up and help me, please? Over food, and that's Cheryl, and she's got the masks of comedy and tragedy. Now, I know in our cabaret coming up, otherwise known as Always Got Talent, we are going to have lots of comedy, but um, that tragedy mask scares me a little bit. You're going to have to stay around and see. Do not go to the ladies' room. Did you hear me? Do not go to the ladies' room because we have a show for you. It's a, it's a very short show, so you can hold it. We have. We have just three people um, in our cabaret tonight. We decided to go for quality, not quantity, and we had extremely high standards, and only three people made the cut. And our standards were they had to show up. So our first entertainer, her name is Drea, and when asked how she'd like to be introduced, I got an email that said, Drea used to lie, but now she goes to meetings. I don't know what that means, but Drea, I hope you're here somewhere to explain it all. Come on up here, the fabulous Drea. Good evening and welcome. How are you? My name is Drea. I'm a compulsive overreader. And I'll be your storyteller for the evening. That's right, storytelling. Everyone's very excited about that. Everyone goes, oh, boy, I hope there's a storyteller. It's been ages. Cavemen or something like that. Yeah, um, it is pretty much the oldest art form there is, but don't be too worried. Just don't leave. You're right. You can hold it for 45 minutes or so, and I might finish before then. Yeah, when they said there's only three of you, they said, go long. And I'm like, you don't, no, don't, don't say that. So Sherry said, how about 15 minutes? I'm like, okay, yeah, that's probably a better idea. Anyway, uh, thank you all for being here tonight. Seriously, you can hold it. And uh, because this is an OA uh, show, I'm going to talk about food. Yeah. Yeah. Give it up for food. See if I can do this. Hey, I can. How's that? You can hear me? You can see me? You ready? Okay. I have a story called, this is one I heard when I was a kid called The King, The Cook, and The One-Legged Chicken. All right, that's food. And there's a lot of talk about food in it. And by the way, so if anyone wants to say that they went out and ate because of this, I want to congratulate you for getting to this hotel and passing Denny's, Wendy's, In-N-Out, and not eating, and yet it was me. Oh, the power. I love it. All right, we're all ready. Everyone's ready. Everyone's calmed. Everyone's relaxed. Everyone's coughed. I know I have. We're all good. Big breath in. I didn't say let it out. All right, let it out. Someone's a little antsy. Okay. In a land where geography was something you did only when you wanted to get away from your parents, 
and where history was something that was just repeated until you got it right, there was a kingdom that was known for absolutely nothing. It was big enough, but it wasn't too big. It was small, but certainly wasn't like, you know, Belize or something. It had mountains that were high. It had rivers that were beautiful, but many places could say this. The people were wonderful, welcoming, and charming, and they were also pains in the asses to their neighbors. There were many grains. There were many fruits. There were mines with diamonds and gold, but a lot of places, again, could say that. Now, the place was known for one thing, which we'll talk about later. This place, though, this kingdom, had a king who was known for absolutely nothing. Now, he was wise, but you would not mistake him for Solomon. He had a wife who, while she wasn't, uh, you know, Helen, she certainly could have launched a ship or two. He had many vast storages, uh, storerooms full of gold, full of grain, full of fine silks. But again, who didn't have that if they were a king? So, all right, when I say he was known for absolutely nothing, that's not quite true. Because what he was known for was his appetite and his love of food. He wasn't a gourmand. He didn't eat out of the garbage. But he appreciated every bite put in front of him. For a while, he had a French chef. And this chef would make hummingbird tongue pie, which this king would eat and enjoy with a very fine lafitte. And for a while, he had a peasant cook who made him rough stews and served it with stale bread that you sopped the juices with. And he loved that and drank down gallons of ale with it, loving every moment of every bite of food. It was said that if you dined with the king, it was a metaphor for going on a diet. Because one, he not only loved his own food, but if there was any left on yours, he'd love that as well. Now, there was a cook in this land. This cook was amazing. This cook would have rejected the hummingbirds used in that hummingbird tongue pie. And not, there would never be stale bread for his stews because any bread he made would be eaten immediately. So naturally, the king had to have him. And he did. And the chef made marvelous meals. Marvelous meals. There was one time during a winter that was so fierce that the sun did not come up until May. And all the court was going to get very hungry very soon because the crops could not be put in. And all that was left in the larder was an old tomato, an old potato, and some beef jerky. And the cook made from that a red flannel hash that they ate for weeks, felt very full and rather sad when they saw green shoots come up out of the ground. Now, one day, this cook made a chicken for the king. And, of course, when he made the chicken, he didn't just make chicken. He made chicken. But on top of that, he used new rose potatoes that he buried in coals inside a wreath of, uh, of what is that, rosemary. It was lovely, basted in butter. Everyone getting hungry again? Good. You can still buy breakfast tickets, by the way. <clears throat> Just so you know. He made asparagus tips that were only this long. The very tip. They were wonderful. He made a baker's dozen. That way he could check one of the rolls of the bread that was also doused in a little rosemary butter. And then... 
the chicken came out of the oven. Now, I don't know if any of you, if any of you have ever cooked chicken. You just kind of cook chicken. No one ever expects it to be amazing because it's chicken. If you get it right, you think, okay, fine, it's chicken. So this cook, now he always tasted the food he made because he was serving it to the king. And what he would do is, well, there was that baker's dozen, so he had one roll left over. He'd usually have a very small new rose potato. And if he had meat, he would slice it in some place where no one would see. And on the chicken, that would be back along the ribs. You know that little spot. Don't tell me you don't. How many people in here cracked the marrow of their chicken? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So you know what I'm talking about. And this is where he tasted just a little sliver. I don't know how to tell you this. The cook had made the perfect chicken. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. No, it's, it's, it's not that believable that he did. It was the perfect chicken. It was amazing. It was delicious. He himself was startled by it to the point that he had to have more. Now, I don't know if any of you are familiar with that feeling. He sliced off a drumstick, and he ate it, and it was delicious. And yes, he cracked the bones for the marrow. At which point he sort of came to and went, oh dear. For the bird now looked just a little funny, and this king would know. So therefore he had to do what anyone would do in that situation, and that was try to figure out how to cover it up, which he did. He put the new rose potatoes over on that side of the chicken and stuck in a jaunty sprig of rosemary. And then he took some old rice that he'd been planning on having for his own dinner, and he cooked it up with some slivered almonds and some dried cherries. That's right, he invented pilaf. <laughs> which he then put on a platter and put the chicken in and put those new rose potatoes, which usually circled around it, kind of like on that picture of the turkey some of us have. I know it was chicken, but that's a turkey. I know my fantasy dinner tickets, okay? And there was, it was going to flat. It was going to be excellent. And, but instead, potatoes were all in that one spot. And he took the meal in and then went back to the kitchen to wait. Now, the king had been having a very busy day, and he was looking forward to the delicious smells he was smelling. Oh, it was chicken, and it was chicken that was good. And he indeed ate every bite that was on the table. He cracked the marrow, the bones for the marrow. And at that point, he sort of noticed a little problem. There were not enough bones on his plate. He didn't feel funny, so he figured, no, that's not the problem. <laughs> and he realized there was a problem. And he had the guards bring the cook in, and he said, where is that drumstick? And the cook said, drumstick, majesty, was there no drumstick on, on, on that bird? And the king said, there was but one. And the cook said, well, then you had the drumstick, good for you. I hope it was good. That chicken should have had two drumsticks. The king said, and the cook said, my liege, you've had chicken before. Did this taste like chicken to you? Has chicken ever had such a regal feeling to it? And the king had to admit, it was a pretty good bird. He thought it was chicken, but maybe it wasn't. But that doesn't explain the fact that there was only one drumstick. And the cook said, my lord, this bird only has but one leg. 
king did not feel like he should believe that. But he was a fair enough king. Not, not so fair that, again, he would be making the history books for it. But fair enough to say, if you can prove that, I will spare your life. Because, you know, that's fair as far as kings go. And addicts. So the cook said, very well then, my lord, come with me. And the cook was actually in chains at that time. So they released him from the chains, which was nice of them, because that way he, the guards, and the king in his big ermine coat, you know, like the one they always have, were able to walk out of the palace, walk down the grounds, down to a pond, where birds were settling in for the evening. Water birds settling in, tucking their heads in. And standing on one leg. Now, my hands are average size. They're not huge. They're not tiny. I could sit well in that kingdom. Therefore, I cannot replicate and will need, with your help, to replicate the sound that the king then made upon seeing all these birds where there's a cook standing next to him going, ta-da! So on the count of three, everyone ready? One, two, three, clap. Everyone can do that. I want you to make the sound the king's hands made. One, two, three. Oh, come on. Come on. People with arthritis forgiven. Outside of that, come on. One, two, three. Much better. And with that regal sound crackling across the water, all the birds woke up and dropped their leg. And the king turned and looked at his soon-to-be ex-chef, ex-living chef. And the cook looked over to the king. And he said, Oh, my lord, if only you'd done that at the table! Well, the king didn't buy that for one moment. What the hell? It was a pretty good joke, he thought. So the chef lived. Now, I told you there was one more thing. There was one thing this land was known for. And that was they had a very good memory. And they remembered this story. And when it was told through the years, as indeed it was, they all replicated that one sound they heard the king made that solved the whole story. They did this in honor of the king. They did it in honor of the people who make really great food. And they did it in honor of the person who told them the story. I would ask you to do that now. I thank you. That was about 15? Close enough? Yeah, okay. So we can, uh, we can get the, is, is Anne around? Yeah, you know, you could, you want to? You want to come up? Do your next introduction? Ladies and gentlemen, Anne! Thank you so much, Trey. That was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful.
terrific. I still don't know what the lying and the now she goes to meetings is about, but that, that's okay. Never mind. <laughs> Our next entertainer, uh, her name is Sherry. This is uh, performing at her fourth OA event. She comes from the Saturday AM Loma Lita, California meeting. Um, and something that's very interesting about her her musical history. She began playing the flute. That was her first instrument, but that wasn't like really cool enough to play with a band. So um, it it wasn't until after she got into OA that she started to take up the guitar so that she could live her life's dream of playing with a rock band. This is 20 years later, and she is now the lead singer and guitarist for Peppercorn, which is a five-piece rock cover band. Sherry, come on and entertain us. this is worth the wait. (laughs) I was much more prepared for the workshop. Well, that was well. 
before I before I start here, I actually wanted to um, share a little bit about how I came to uh, play guitar and and touch on. She didn't exactly right, but of course she got like the two minute version <laughs> today. Um, like she mentioned, somewhat embarrassingly, I played flute when I was a kid, and I was a band geek and all that good stuff in high school. And can you guys hear me? Okay. Um, and I joined OA when I was 23 years old. And two years later, I decided that I wanted to learn how to play the guitar. Now, it wasn't a lifelong dream of mine because I didn't have any sort of lifelong dreams because I just, you know, didn't have any dreams. Let's face it, I was eating. And... Um, and I started playing guitar when I was 25, and I did not join a band until I was 35. And, um, oh, God, I'm telling you how old I was, and I told her not to tell that. But, um, and then I played in a band, but I didn't sing. And then I started singing after six years of playing in a band, and I started singing backup. And um, then all of a sudden I was in a band, and there was no one else who could sing. So I was the lead singer. And the reason why I, I never sang before that wasn't because I couldn't sing. It's because I didn't think I could sing. And I didn't think I could stand in front of people and perform. And I didn't think that anyone would want to see me and people would laugh at me or think I was terrible or whatever. Um, and you might think that if you do, please don't tell me. But um, <laughs> but my point is, is, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are when you come in this program, your life is going to get better in ways that you never imagined. If someone would have told me when I came in this program that I would be singing and lead singer and playing guitar in a rock and roll band, you know, for fun, I would have laughed at them. And, you know, it took me 10 years to come out from, you know, taking lessons and play in a band, and it took me six years from that to sing in front of people. And, um, you know, that's just my path, just like some of us, you know, those who know, know Vanita S., who, you know, was a beloved member of this program. She came in when she was in her 70s, you know, and she achieved abstinence, and, you know, she was went to her 80th birthday party, you know, and she was just a wonderful example. So I just wanted to share that with you. I mean, I don't normally share that when I do a gig, you know. It's not like I'm out there going, hey, I'm in OA, people. You know, this is definitely not cool. I mean, being in AA is almost mandatory to be in a band. But, <laughs> which I'm not. I'm an Al-Anon, so, you know, I can't even do that right. Um, but, you know, I mean, if there's something that you've never done because you've been afraid, you can do it. You know, I don't care if you're seven or you're 70, you know, and so I'm going to do a few songs for you. <coughs> hopefully my voice will hold up. I have a little bit of a cough, but, um, and I hope that you enjoy them as, you know, much as I enjoy having found my voice in a way in so many ways, um, not just, you know, singing. So thank you. I go out walking after midnight Out in the moonlight Just like we used to do I'm always walking after midnight Searching for you 
I walk for miles along the highway. Well, that's just my way of saying I love you. I'm always walking after midnight searching for you. I stop to see a weeping willow crying on his pillow. Maybe he's crying for me. As the sad turns gloomy, night winds whisper to me, I'm lonesome as I can be. I go out walking after midnight, out in the starlight, just hoping you may be somewhere a-walking after midnight, searching for me. I stop to see a weeping willow Crying on his pillow, maybe he's crying for me. As the sky turns gloomy, night winds whisper to me, I'm lonesome as I can be. I go out walking after midnight, out in the starlight, just hoping you may be somewhere a-walking. After midnight searching for me. Okay, well, I didn't bring all this equipment up here just to do one song, so. <laughs> Who here likes the Eagles? All right. I'm actually going to do a couple Eagles songs, but this is uh, this is one called Lion Eyes, which I just uh, I like to sing. Um, it's a pretty cool song, so. City girls just seem to find out early How to open doors with just a smile Rich old man, she won't have to worry Dress up all in lace and go in style Late at night, big old house gets lonely. I guess every form of refuge has its price. And it breaks her heart to think her love is lonely. Given to a man with hands as cold as ice. So she tells him she must go out for the evening. Comfort an old friend who's feeling down. He knows where she's going as she's leaving. She is headed for the cheating side of town. You can't hide your lying eyes And your smile is in disguise Thought by night 
if you actually know this group you know that they have a lot of instrumentation a lot of uh, keyboards and that kind of thing but to me one of the tests of a really good song is if it holds up with just an acoustic guitar and I think that this song does and I I like singing it it's a pretty cool song so I don't care if Monday's blue, Tuesday's gray, and Wednesday too, or Thursday. I don't 
care about you. It's Friday, I'm in love. Monday, you can fall apart. Tuesday, Wednesday, breaks my heart. Oh, Thursday doesn't even start. It's Friday, I'm in love. Saturday, wait. Sunday, I wish comes too late. Friday, never hesitate. I don't care if Monday's back. Tuesday, Wednesday, heart attack. Oh, Thursday, never looking back. It's Friday, I'm in love. Monday, you can hold your head. Tuesday, Wednesday, stay in bed. Oh, Thursday, watch the walls instead. It's Friday, I'm in love. Saturday, wait. Sunday, I wait, comes late. Friday, never hesitate. Dress up to the eyes, it's a wonderful surprise. See your shoes and your spirit rise. Throwing out your frown, just smiling at the sound. That sleek as a shriek, spinning round and around. Always taking a big bite, such a gorgeous sight. See you eat in the middle of the night. You can never get enough, enough of this stuff. It's Friday, I'm in love. I don't care if Monday's blue. Tuesday's gray and Wednesday too. Well, Thursday, I don't care about you. It's Friday, I'm in love. Monday, you can fall apart. Tuesday, Wednesday, breaks my heart. Oh, Thursday, doesn't even start. It's Friday, I'm in love. I have one more song. I should have brought some water up here, but I didn't know where to put it. Does anyone? <laughs> Thank you. Okay, I want to dedicate this song to uh, someone that's uh, very special to everyone in this room, I'm sure, and that's Ida. And this is another Eagle song. It's called Desperado. So um, bear with me. I'm going to have to move my music up because this sheet music's really small. And no one told me when you got old that you can't see anymore. So I don't perform this song with my band, so I haven't, uh, <laughs> I don't have it in big print. <laughs> I just have regular sheet music. But anyways, um, Ida shared about this song at uh, one of the South Bay retreats one year, and um, I got this idea that the next year I would surprise her and, you know, perform the song. And 
it turns out that I really like the song, and so um, I'm really glad to do it, and this will be my last song. So thank you. Hold on just a minute, sorry. Desperado, why don't you come to your senses? You've been out riding fences for so long now. You're a hard one. I know that you've got your reasons. Things that are pleasing you can hurt you somehow. Don't you draw the queen of diamonds, boy, beat you if she's able. You know, the queen of hearts is always your best bet. Now it seems to me some fine things have been laid upon your table. You only want the ones that you can't get. Desperado. You ain't getting no younger Pain and your hunger That's driving you home Freedom, oh freedom Well, that's just some people talking Prisoners walking through this world alone Don't you think it cold in the winter time Sky won't snow and the sun won't shine Hard to tell the night time from the day Losing all your highs and lows Funny how the feeling goes away Desperado Why don't you come to your senses You've been out riding fences for so long now You're a hard one Sorry <laughs> Oh, sorry Come down from your fences And open the gate Maybe it raining But there's a rainbow above you Better let somebody love you You better let somebody love you before it's too late. Thank you. up. Um, several questions for you out there. How many people out there have ever belly danced? Anybody? Wow! I am impressed. <laughs> I belly 
dance at least three times a day myself. Um, how many people have imagined or even thought about, wow, that would be a really neat thing to do, in addition to those who have done it? I always thought it would be a really cool thing to learn. Never tried it, but we're going to have an entertainer tonight who has not only tried it, but mastered the art of belly dancing. We have from Monday night, Daily City, California, the exotic, the erotic Tatini.
Okay, next year we're all going to do that. I know that. That was just, thank you, thank you so much, Kajiri. Really an admirable job. My goodness. That, folks, is Region 2, OA's Got Talent for 2009. And I think, Cheryl, you have a few remarks. One more. Come on. At each table, if you look under your chairs, there, there is a centerpiece on your table that's just magnificent. And if you look under your chairs, there's a number on one of the chairs, and whoever has that chair with the number can take home the centerpiece. What? Oh, it's, I'm sorry, it's in the front. That's, I wanted you to get some exercise. It's in the front of your chair.